scripture for today. It is Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. Today we have an honor and a pleasure to introduce you to Pastor Nate Pugh. Nate Pugh and his wife Crystal uh, moved to Philadelphia in 2010 so that he could attend Westminster Seminary. And during that time, they began attending Renewal West Philly and served in a few different roles during their time there. And in 2015, they moved to Santiago, Chile, where Nate pastored at an international church for five years. In 2020, they moved back to Philadelphia and are now in the process of moving to Cherry Hill, New Jersey to plant a church with a group of Renewal families from the Center City campus. So I look very much forward to his preaching, and I pray that God will speak to every one of us here today through Nathan. Now allow me to read the passage for us. Once again, it's Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. This is the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your po poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Good morning, Renewal. It's good to be here with you guys this morning. I, I gotta be honest, um, getting to worship with you all and getting to preach here this morning is, is a huge privilege an honor for me, and for those of you at home, I'll try to stay centered. I'm sorry. I'm a mover when I preach, so. Um, it's a big honor because for me, many of you guys I've known for a long time. I've gotten to interact with you, and we've gotten to see each other grow, and I've gotten to know your families. Um, and for many of you, uh, I've, this is the first time I've seen you. And so it's encouraging for me to be able to see the way that God has continued to grow and foster his kingdom uh, throughout the years. You know, oftentimes when you guest preach uh, at, a new, at a congregation, you don't know anyone going into that service. And so the first time you stand there, it's a little bit weird as you take in all these different faces. For many of you, I was able to pray for you this week as I was preparing this sermon. And then it even caused me to consider, too, though, for those of you that I didn't know, to be able to pray for you as well and, and to know the way that God continues to advance his kingdom forward. It can be easy in the moment, I think, when we're in our individual churches and we have our individual conflicts and we have our individual problems, it can be very easy to get bogged down by those things and discouraged by those things and to think, what difference are we even making? Where are we even going? What, what progress are we even making? And yet, when I think back, you know, 12 years ago at this point when we came to Philadelphia and first got involved uh, with renewal, and we see now that um, obviously, the, it was at the time the Devon campus had been launched. There was a city line church that had been planted. And then obviously there is, not so long ago, a group from City Avenue Parish that came out here and became part of this congregation. And then Center City, not many years ago, was planted as a campus. 
And now my, me and my family are on our way to Cherry Hill because 10 families last summer decided to move to South Jersey. So we're going to put a church over there. And what, why do I say all this? Not because the whole emphasis is, wow, look at renewal and all the great things that renewal is doing. No, no, no. The purpose is to say that Christ's kingdom is advancing despite all of our failures, despite all of our sinfulness, despite all of our shortcomings, God's kingdom keeps on moving and it keeps on going forward. And we're a part of that mission. And I want to encourage you this morning to have that kingdom mindset, especially as we look at this passage, this little church in Smyrna. And we look at this passage this morning and we consider, we try to put ourselves in their shoes and consider where they were at, what they're going through, and how the Lord just uses that congregation to just keep his kingdom growing and building and pushing forward despite all the sinfulness, despite all the anger and the hatred that exists in this world. The Lord and his mission cannot be stopped. So with that in our hearts, with that in our minds, hearts and minds as we begin this morning, let's come to the Lord in prayer as we pray for this passage, that the Lord would open up to us what it is that we need to hear from him. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you so much for this opportunity to be here. And I thank you for this passage that you've given us this morning to look at in your revelation, Father to the early churches and the message that it brought to them, Lord God, and the message that it now brings to us as your people. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to be in this place this morning where we can look back over the course of history and know that even though we are sinful and frail and broken human beings, Lord God, that your kingdom continues to move forward. And that you worked and continue to work through little congregations like Smyrna, Lord God, to grow your people and to advance your kingdom forward. Father, we ask that our hearts this morning would be open and ready to hear what it is that we need to hear. Father God, we ask that, that if there's any hardness in our hearts, any resistance to the words and the truths of your scripture, Lord God, that the Holy Spirit would come upon our hearts in this time and just begin to soften our hearts, Lord God. We ask that your Holy Spirit would open our ears and make us willing to hear the message that is to be spoke, preached this morning to us, Lord God. Father, we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we look at this passage this morning, as we begin, you know, there is a lot that is said. We just had it read a minute ago about tribulation and trials that are coming to the church in Smyrna. And the words that are spoken to these people are to not lose heart. What the Apostle John desires that they know is that while they may undergo tests and tribulations, while they may undergo difficult times, potentially even to the point of death, 
they hold firm to the reality of Christ and his death and resurrection upon the cross, his conquering of sin and death, if they hold to that truth, to that reality, there is everlasting life that awaits them. The Apostle John calls it the crown of life. So we hear these words. These are big words. Who is it that can say to you, the crown of life awaits you? And we see here at the very beginning, in verse 8, it says, To the angel, the angel here just speaking plainly as the leaders of the church in Smyrna, the angel of the church in Smyrna write, this is Jesus saying, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. The first and the last. This is a reference, if you would look back in, in the first chapter, verses 12 through 18, Jesus first identifies himself. All these churches that are being spoken to, Jesus identifies himself as the one who's speaking to him, to them. And, and maybe you've uh, already done one church, I think, so you may have heard this already, but it's worth just reminding ourselves of who is this one who is speaking. This is one of my favorite passages I'm about to read to you, and I had a moment when I was in seminary where I was sitting there trying to learn to read Greek, right? Not a, not a task for the faint of heart. And I'll never forget where I was. I was over at a Starbucks in Dresher. I was working at it at the time. Uh, it's right there on the, there's a little Starbucks right on the corner of the road, just off of uh, 276. And I'm sitting there on my break, and I'm translating Greek, because that's what all good baristas do. They sit there and translate Greek during their time off. And I didn't know what I was translating. I didn't know the passage that it was. And I'll never forget, as I began to translate this passage, and realize what I was reading. That it was the revelation of Jesus Christ to the churches. That Jesus was making himself known to the people. Who he is. He was establishing his authority. I began to weep as I read this. I'll never forget reading this. So every time I get a chance to read this passage, for me personally, it's, it's such a powerful thing because this is the resurrected Jesus making himself known to us. This is the one, when he calls himself the first and the last, this is the king who is speaking. Verse 12 of chapter 1 then I turned, this is John saying, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters, and in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. 
When Jesus says in chapter 2, verse 8, to the people, the words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, this is no ordinary man. You imagine, I have, I have three children. What if I called them up right now, in front of us all, and I sat them down here, Clementine, Malachi, Lucas, I love you, and I'm bestowing on you the authority of kingship. But here's what I'm promising to you. If you're faithful to the end, the crown of life comes to you. You would sit there in your place and think, well, that's very strange. That is weird. He has no authority to do that. He's just an ordinary man. Who is it that bestows upon his children that kingship? However, if we were to see royalty, someone that we acknowledged and knew was a king, do that, or a queen, bestow upon that promise of the crown to come, it would make sense. Why? Because they hold that place. They hold that authority. So everything that Jesus is about to say in this passage comes with authority. He's establishing himself here, and he does this to each of the churches. He reestablishes his authority. I am the king, and here's what I have to say to you. Here's the promise that comes to you if you're faithful to follow after me. And this ultimately changes everything. The fact that Jesus can speak with this sort of authority in our lives changes everything. You see, if Jesus hadn't actually risen from the dead, if Jesus was just a good moral teacher and he died, and there was all just some sort of myth that came about. He didn't actually rise from the dead. His words are meaningless. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, If Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, we are fools. And we are to be pitied. Because we are following a fable and a myth that ought to have zero impact upon our lives. But to the contrary, Jesus here is the one who truly died and rose again. And so he establishes his kingship both with the church in Smyrna and to us today as 21st century believers, understanding and knowing that this Jesus died and rose again. And so what is it that he offers to the people in the church in Smyrna? He offers them a form of assurance and affirmation. Assurance and affirmation is what he brings to the people. In verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. We have a couple of things to unpack here. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. The people in the church of Smyrna were not particularly well off. They were physically suffering. Though he says, you're spiritually rich. Why? Because you have Christ and the promise of the crown to come. But physically, they were not well off. G.K. Uh, Beale, who was one of my professors at Westminster, he wrote a huge um, uh, commentary on the book of Revelation. And one of the things that he says in, in regards to the church of Smyrna is about them and their historical place. In addition, 
the history of Smyrna reveals its particular loyalty to Rome, especially that it had built more than one temple in honor of Roman religion. Such religious patriotism meant generally that there would be even less patience with Christians refusing to pay homage to the deity of the emperor. So we're getting the picture here that Smyrna was this place that had multiple places of worship to the emperor of Rome. And then if you were not willing to worship the emperor of Rome, this meant that you would be sidelined, that you wouldn't be given the opportunities to advance in Roman culture and civilization the way everybody else did because you weren't seen as good Romans. He goes on to say, Indeed, the imperial cult permeated virtually every aspect of city and often even village life in Asia Minor so that the individuals could aspire to economic prosperity and greater social standing only by participating to some degree in the Roman cult. Citizens of both upper and lower classes were required by local law to sacrifice to the emperor on various special occasions, and sometimes even visitors and foreigners were invited to do so. City officials were so dedicated to the cult that they even distributed money to citizens from public funds to pay for sacrifices to the emperor. Think about that. You're being required to sacrifice to the emperor. They would give you money to do that. If you're not going to pay homage to the emperor, now you're missing out on this. It was impo almost impossible to have a share in city's public life without also having a part in some aspect of the imperial cult. Pressure on Christians to conform to such participation would have increased during Domitian's reign from 81 to 96 AD. And those refusing to participate were seen as politically disloyal and unpatriotic, would be arrested and punished according to Roman law, either through exile or capital punishment. But genuine Christians could never actually call anyone Lord except for Christ. This is the pressure that these Christians are feeling. They're feeling pressure from the outward culture. People would know if you were not engaging in the Roman religion. The expectation was that you would offer sacrifices, that you would be a good Roman. And the consequences of not doing so very potentially meant death, exile loss of the ability to advance through life monetarily. Very real pressures being placed on them. But then there's a second piece we see here, beyond just the poverty, and that's the slander of the Jews. You see, what ha was happening in Roman culture was that at a certain point, Nero said, no new religion, only Roman religion, and we will grandfather in the ancient religions. So Judaism was grandfathered in. And people are thinking that Christianity is a sect of Judaism. But the Jews who didn't, the unfaithful Jews who didn't want to be associated with Christians began to sell out the Christians. No, 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 they're not, they're not Jews. They are a separate religion. And so this creates even increasing pressure upon the Christians because now you have people who have an interest in actually making sure that you are oppressed by the Roman government. They actually have a vested interest in disassociating themselves with you. Conversely, what we see John saying here is actually that the church is the true Israel. 
But these Jews who are saying they're Jews but aren't really because they're not actually worshiping the true God. And he ultimately calls them a synagogue of Satan. Now we hear all of this as Christians in this day and age, and a lot of this can seem very far away to us. If we're being honest, very unlikely that any of us, while living in this country, will be called to give our lives for Christ. That's not the reality of the country that we live in. Simultaneously, while not out-and-out oppression, in this country, the pressures are more subtle. The pressures to conform take a more subtle and nuanced form. We are a country that worships and glorifies power, money, and influence. We have a whole sector of jobs that has infiltrated our country within the last 15 years known as influencers. Right? And people who are attempting to get you to purchase both other products which benefit their brand and their brand itself. Most of us are exposed to this on a daily basis. All you have to do is open your phone, log on the internet, and suddenly you are being sold something. We are a country that worships money and security. And while there is not the out and out, you must worship this, to do anything other than that often comes with looks of why not? Why wouldn't you seek that safety and security? Why wouldn't you pursue as much money as possible? And so if you find yourselves in your workplaces, you may be asked to compromise your beliefs in order to pursue certain ventures which might be more monetarily advantageous for the place that you work. And you might have to say to yourself, am I going to do that or not? Why not? And, and maybe it won't mean necessarily, it's not going to mean necessarily that, that you would lose your life over this. But it might mean that you're passed up for promotions. It might mean that you eventually lose your job because you don't play the corporate game the way that everyone else does. There is potentially suffering that comes about as a result of this. There's an interesting, you know, one of the things that I think is important in a circumstance like this is we need to look and say, okay, maybe we ourselves are not in a position where we are necessarily going to lose our lives over our faith. So it can be difficult to look at it internally. But what does someone from the outside who very well may lose their life for their faith have to say about us? There's a, a pastor out of China who has actually, he started various organizations which within China that seek to bring religious freedom, which admittedly is a very tall task. But Pastor Fu, he was, he was interviewed a few years ago, and this is what he has to say. He's actually been living back and forth between China and the U.S. over the last 20 years. And someone asked him, what would you say about persecution to the American church that isn't necessarily facing this life-or-death persecution? He said, I often think about this question. 
What's the fundamental difference, right? What could we really learn about how the Lord works in persecuted areas versus, the, versus those with freedom? He said, I, I think I felt the key is back to the fundamental. It's the Lordship of Christ. Do we really, really, really trust and believe that the Lord is over our entire life? And every day, every time, everywhere, instead of just Sunday or certain times, or with a group of people, are we too intimidated by the culture, by the secularism, by the kinds of pressures around us? He says, I remember once a group of American Christian business leaders visited China and met with a group of Chinese businessmen. Other Chinese brothers and sisters began to share how the gospel is being spread. And when they would share the message of the gospel in their workplace, the American Christian businessmen said, no, we can't do that in the U.S. We would be sued by the ACLU. And the Chinese Christian business reply was, so what? He's like, I think about that answer, the so what, we really think. I have to kind of meditate on it. Are we so intimidated by the culture, the, by the privatization of faith, by being accused of being right-wing or any other sort of label, or narrow-minded, and then we just retreat from the public square? We retreat our faith. And from instead of what Paul says, which is, we in season and out of season— we pray to the gospel, and woe to me if I stopped sharing that. Are we really more fearful of the Lord than fearful of the atheistic, secular culture, the pressure, the political moment? I think that is a tragedy. I think in the free world like America, we really holistically and continuously need to restore back the spirit of the early church. This is the challenge for us, is to ask that question. When you are confronted with the opportunity, when are you ready to share the gospel? And when you're confronted with the opportunity where you need to stand up for your faith and say, I cannot go there. I cannot sacrifice at this altar. What do you do? Because the ultimate question is, if you lose your job, so what? And I don't say this glibly. I don't say this half-handedly like, you know, so what? You'll just find another job. No. It could destroy your reputation. You may have worked for years hard in a particular field. If you lose your job, your reputation, but it means that you save your soul, that you didn't abandon your faith in that moment, so what? something we have to really think on and consider. Because ultimately here, and this is the affirmation that Christ gives us, when we ask the question of so what, why is it that we can say that with authority? It's because what Christ says next in verse 10. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do not fear. Ephesians 6.12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the evil rulers, and against, or against their evil rulers and authorities, but rather against the cause of powers, over, against this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heaven of evil in the heavenly places. 
You see the people in your workplace, the people in your local schools, the people in your communities, they are not your enemies. You are waging battle against spiritual forces. And it's, we see this here in the second half of verse 10, when Jesus says, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. It's not that terrible Roman imperial guard is about to throw you into prison. No, this is the work of Satan who's going after you for being a believer in Christ. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. There is going to come suffering as a result of your belief in me. Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It should not surprise you when you are hated for the name of Christ. So, when we read this, okay, great. I, I need to stand up for my faith. I need to be ready and willing. If it means I will suffer, if it means there is hardship that may come to me, so how? What does that look like practically in that moment? Well, it's really important that we go, actually. We read from it partially, but if you guys want to turn with me in your Bibles to James, the book of James, and we're going to go to chapter 1, right at the very beginning. Chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Count it joy. Why? Because it means that you are truly a follower of Christ, that eternal life truly does await you if you suffer for the name of Christ. Count it joy. produces steadfastness. There is a resoluteness that comes about when you do not fear what will happen to you in this world. Not in some sort of glib, you know, walking around in the way, you know, Chuck Norris, nothing can destroy me, I can do whatever I want. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about suffering that comes about because you are a rotten sinner who just makes everyone hate you. That's not the suffering we're talking about. We're talking about the suffering that comes about because you are seeking to follow after Christ in all humility and gentleness and seeking to love others, be an outpost for the Christian faith, and you are hated anyways. Because the message that you come with does not jive with the message of the world. There is a steadfastness that comes with that. And let steadfastness, verse 4, James 1, have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, these sorts of trials, they bring about a maturity so that you know, I, I don't need the things of this world. I have Christ. I have his blessing as my king. How do we know? How do we seek after the things of Christ? How do we know what it looks like 
to be resolute and seek after this steadfastness. Verse 5, if any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. If you ask the Lord, he will give it. Proverbs 2.6 says, For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Let me read that again for you. For the Lord gives wisdom, from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Where do we hear from his mouth? Where do we find it? In the scriptures, which are given to you. 1 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Brothers and sisters, if you are fearful, if you are concerned about what it's going to look like for you to know how to react when the moment of trial, when the moment of suffering comes about you, do not wait. A soldier doesn't wait till battle to start training. An athlete doesn't wait until the competition to begin training. There are, is hours and hours of time put in before that. Immerse yourself in the life-giving word of God. Drink from it. It is the fountain of everlasting water. Life comes from it. And if you find yourself daily in the Word of God, drinking from it, seeking its wisdom, it will supernaturally drive every work of your life. So that when you meet the moments of trials and suffering, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the Helper, will come to you in those moments. And I fear, I fear, that in a country like this, where we have so much, every single one of you has a Bible in your pocket right now, maybe in, in your hands in front of you, every single person, the early church, if they got one letter, they sat in a circle and read from it, and we all have the Word of God here. Pick your language. And yet, do we drink from it the way the early church did? Because they drank from the Word of God when they got it, and it empowered them so that in the midst of suffering, when it meant death for their faith, there was no wavering. They were willing to give their lives for Christ. Why? Because of the crown of life that awaited them. Ultimately, here, we are to count it joy. For the Lord is going to show himself faithful to care for us in the midst of trials. You will see his greatness made known in those moments. If we go back to Revelation 2 to finish out our passage here. We have two commands and two promises that come with the end of verse 10 and verse 11. 
The two commands. Be faithful unto death, and he who has an ear, let him hear. Be faithful unto death. Are you willing to give your life so wholeheartedly to Christ that if it means death, you're willing to give it? I wrestle with this all the time. All the time I wrestle with this. If I was ever called, I want to believe, I want to believe that if I was called to die for my faith, that I would do it. I pray to God that he gives me the strength and the wisdom. That's part of the reason why I immerse myself in his word. I pray to God that if I ever find myself in one of those moments where I'm required to give my life for Christ, that I'm ready. Just like that. No questions asked. Be faithful unto death. Seek the Lord so that you might be faithful unto death. Seek his wisdom. But then also we see, he who has an ear, let him hear. Jesus used these words in the book of Matthew, and they hearken back to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Interestingly enough, when the words are said, he who has an ear, let him hear in Isaiah, what it's actually meant to proclaim is that those who have been walking away from the Lord that their lack of hearing, that these words only solidify the hardness of heart. And so I would encourage you this morning, if you've been listening to me, and I say, be ready to be willing to give your life to Christ, or I say things about the workplace like, so what if you lose it, your job? These words here of, he who has an ear, let him hear, are words from the Holy Spirit calling you right now to repent. They are calling you to repent. You are not trusting that the Lord will take care of you. You are fearful of what may come if all of the wealth you've built disappears. So what? Will the Lord cease caring for you? Will he cease being with you? Will he cease meeting your every need? He will not. He who has an ear, let him hear. So the two commands, be faithful unto death, and he who has an ear, let him hear. And there are two promises that come for the one who is willing to be faithful unto death, and the one who has an ear and hears. Two promises. The first is the crown of life. In that passage in James that we just read from. If you go a little further, what it says is that if you are faithful, you will receive the crown of life. This is in reference to everlasting life. That is the life to come. There are two deaths. There is the physical death, but there is a second death that comes for those who are not faithful with Christ. And James also speaks to that in the end, that if we don't deal with our sinful hearts on this earth, Eventually, it will reach its fullest destruction in total separation from everything that is good. That is the Lord. There is nothing that should scare you more than the idea of the second death. 
I fear as well that far too often the thought, I feel, and the reason I fear this for all of us is because I fear it in my own, I feel it in my own heart. That the thought of losing everything we've built on this earth, the thought of job loss, the thought of losing our lives on this earth, we fear more than the second death. But rather, for the one who is faithful until the end, you will receive the crown of life. You will enter into your glory, which is full communion with the Lord. Imagine the most glorious day you've ever had, where you felt just totally loved and cared for and known. It's that every day in glory. And imagine, and more, and imagine the loneliest, darkest time you've ever been in. And the goodness of God was still there. The second death, there is no goodness of God there. It is just hopeless, dark, wailing, and pain. The call here for the church in Smyrna is to be faithful. That no matter what trials and suffering come, they are nothing in comparison to what it looks like if you do not remain faithful with the Lord. But for the one who seeks after the wisdom of the Lord, the one who holds firmly to the cross, who says, I believe in Christ. I know he has conquered death. I know he is victorious. I know he will not leave me or forsake me. For that one, there is life everlasting. And maybe you find yourself this morning, you've gone between both. There have been times when you have forsaken the name of the Lord. There is restoration. There is hope. I'll close with this example. My, my favorite, one of my favorite images in the scriptures. You think about the apostle Peter. This is what makes his story so compelling. Is he's so relatable. All of us can understand, yes, I believe in you, Jesus. I'm never going to forsake you. And then the rooster crows three times, and he's completely abandoned the Lord. And yet, and yet there is forgiveness for this man. We see in John chapter 20, what does Jesus do? He restores him. And so maybe this morning you've heard this, and you hear what I have to say about separation from God and remaining faithful, and you're like, yeah, but Nate, I've, I've gone back and forth, and I've, I, I haven't always been faithful to him, and sometimes I've been ashamed of my faith. Jesus says to you, come. Come. There is forgiveness like you cannot imagine that can wash over you. Come to me. Cling to me. In me alone is there hope and life everlasting. So that one day, when we go to meet Jesus, he will say, as he said to the church in Smyrna, 
as when they would come and greet him after their death. For his name's sake, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, Lord, we, we come to you, and we know, Lord God, that this, this Christian life that we walk, it is, it is a hard road, Lord. We know that you have told us that, that we will be hated because we are your people. We know that Father, we know that there is, potential, there is suffering and pain that awaits us if we follow after your name, Lord God. Father, I ask that despite whatever, whatever the world's securities are, whether it's the job we've always wanted, whether it's the money we are making, whether it's the house that we have purchased, the family that is growing, the way our children are succeeding, all of these things, these are fine and good things. These are blessings from you. But they cannot be where our hope lies. They cannot be where we find our strength and security. They will be what, where the world tells us hope is found. They will be where the world tells us our security ought to be. But we know that through Christ, hope is only found in clinging to him. And so I ask, Father God, that in this moment, in this morning, that we sit here, Father, and we've heard the words you had to say to the church in Smyrna, Lord God, that we would be encouraged to renew our desire to seek after you. That we would be faithful to you, even to the point of death. Knowing full well that Christ was faithful, even to the point of death. And that because of his death upon the cross, Lord God, we now have life. And we can have life everlasting and full. Lord God, may your Holy Spirit strengthen and encourage us to be willing in the face of potential suffering. Lord God, that your Holy Spirit might fill us up so that we might be strengthened and resolute knowing that if we are standing firm upon your promises, that you will give us the wisdom you will give us the strength and the courage to live as you have called us to live. That we will be able to be salt and light in a dark and broken world, Lord God. Father, we lift all of this up to you in the name of Jesus.